So it's a cold, bright day in April, and the clocks have just struck 13. So 15 minutes ago or so, 20 minutes ago. So welcome to Dystopia. Uh, this uh, talk really begins with the election of Donald Trump in November of last year. Uh, but it goes back even further than that to the extraordinary acceleration in sales of 1984 and other literary dystopias following Edward Snowden's revelations about the NSA, uh, the scope of NSA surveillance of US and other citizens in the world. And then following that, not so much Mr. Trump's election as Mr. Trump's inauguration in January of this year, which provoked, in turn, an outpouring of angst, anguish, sensibility as to the general direction in which the world was heading, exacerbated, obviously, for us by Brexit, by the prospective then Dutch election, the French election, and so on, the tilt in an extremely right-wing direction of a number of other, particularly Eastern European governments, especially Hungary and Poland, the uh, naked support of such movements by the Russian government as well. The world seems to be moving, it would appear, in the direction of, so this stream of consciousness seemed to indicate, uh, an, an imitation of what the world looked like in the early 1930s. So this poster, which no doubt some of you have seen before, was very popular at the very beginning of this year. And what I want to do is to try to use it just as a springboard for talking about the dystopian literary tradition in particular. Now this, the one central argument really that I want to make here is that we can talk about a recurrence of fascism it's perhaps important to do this. We're well aware that history never repeats itself in exactly the same way, and that regimes which might deserve, there are historians here, uh, the relatively precise label of fascism, whether Italian, German, Spanish, whatever, in this period, won't necessarily reappear in the same forms today. They don't yet in Hungary, Poland, or the US or Russia. Uh, but nonetheless, we recognize that stretching back to the last immediate period of extraordinary political catastrophe in the world, we do need to start with a parallel before we go on to assess what is more precisely characteristic about the political malaise of our own times. So what I want to do is to use this as a springboard and then to argue to you that in fact dystopia, the concept, and the literary tradition gives us a sense of a different kind of future from this attempt to look back to the 1930s. A sense which is, in some respects, even more poignant. It's certainly more far-reaching. Uh, it's certainly more future-oriented, distant future-oriented. So I want to do that then by looking briefly at what dystopia is, one has to start any kind of assessment of this type with some sort of definition. Then to look a bit at the evolution of the literary tradition, and then to ask where we're going at the moment. So these characteristics, I think, are familiar to all of you. And interestingly enough, the last 
six weeks, I've given this talk in Hungary, Poland, and Russia, and the response of audiences in all these countries has been very different, I have to say. Uh, I don't talk in those countries about their own national politics for reasons that are obvious. I value my scalp amongst <laughs> other things. In Russia in particular, you can lose it relatively easily. Uh, less so in Hungary and Poland, but you might get thumped if you're not careful. So I allow people to draw their own conclusions. Thankfully, we still have sufficient latitude here to address our own political rulers face to face. That is, if they deign to face us, which is not the case at the moment. So, uh, but I think also at the same time, the immediate applications for us in Britain are pretty obvious of these qualities. So the signs are, and it's very interesting that in particular in these three countries where I last gave the talk, the first qualification, nationalism, is coded in an extremely positive way. So as soon as I put this up on the wall and said, this is something we need to be alert to as a warning sign of fascism, hackles started to rise immediately. Nationalism is a good thing to be prized in, for most in Hungary, Poland, and Russia. So we want to think about how exactly we want to filter that perception through our realization that, of course, nationalism is playing a role in politics and certainly in the current election campaign already. So powerful and continuing nationalism, this is, of course, uh, a distinctly Orwellian theme, by which I mean that Orwell himself was extremely concerned to try to draw out some of the logical connections between what he actually calls nationalism and what he regards, and we would still roughly, loosely speak of as totalitarianism. Disdain for human rights goes without saying, uh, widely evident almost everywhere. Now, I, the, the American narrative here, the North American narrative, the US American narrative, is one which would probably most of us most immediately point to today. So uh, here one would want to think about attitudes towards the court and judiciary, of course, in the second category. Identification of enemies and scapegoats, it's a major theme in the book, which is written around organizing the concept of dystopia as identifying enemies and attempting to neutralize them. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. Supremacy of the military, of course, is not an issue for us, but in Russia, most certainly, and in the US, as we saw, Trump's first financial measure was to increase military spending by 10%, but to take all of that expenditure from domestic programs, of course. Rampant sexism, not something we traditionally associate with fascism, but yet it is, in fact, of course, endemic. If anybody of, uh, amongst you knows Catherine Burdekin's Swastika Night, well-known anti-Hitler uh, literary dystopian of 1940, that's the central theme of that uh, extremely important feminist text. Control of mass media is the central theme that, of course, we associate with the classical literary dystopia uh, already from the early part of this century, and particularly then after the development of critiques of the Bolshevik Revolution, now seen, of course, through alternative forms of media and the internet as much as anything else, uh, one of the single most vibrant themes associated with the subject. Obsession with national security goes with all of the above. Religion and government, apparently to us, probably less relevant today uh, and, of course, not really relevant to, 
to Hitler's Germany either, where the separation is quite marked, nor to the USSR, for example, under Stalin. So I'm not quite sure why that's there, although in some instances, think of The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, if anybody knows that. Of course, that's the central theme. One specter of the future dystopia is, and this just being made as a film, of course, at the moment, this is uh, places religion, again, at the forefront of the dangers that we potentially face. Corporate power, theme that runs actually from, I'll talk about this also in a moment, from the late 19th century literary dystopias onwards. Uh, it goes without saying the drain the swamp uh, motif has been in Trump's case of refilling of the swamp with other sorts of swamp creatures drawn from his friends rather than uh, Hillary's friends. Labor power suppressed, that goes without saying, occurs virtually everywhere. We'll see it continue should the uh, conservatives, of course, have a, a reinforced majority in the coming election. Disdain for intellectuals and the arts, very common theme amongst uh, both uh, dystopian writers and real life dystopias. Uh, it, the middle third of the book is about uh, actual dystopias used as a historical description of existing regimes. Hitler, uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin, and Cambodia under Pol Pot are the main examples, although I talk a bit about China, a couple of other countries here. It's certainly the case that in all these instances, the single most targeted group in all those societies, by uh, judged uh, by numbers of those executed proportion to numbers in the population as a whole, is intellectuals, us. So we are the first victims of all these regimes. Watch this space. Uh, obsession with crime and punishment, very common motif, of course. Great way to whip up popular enthusiasm for a regime. Rampant cronyism and corruption. This is uh, something, of course, those of you who are following the debate about our own election know that some uh, 20 to 30 uh, Tory MPs election agents are now uh, under suspicion vis-a-vis -vis the last election. Uh, the infiltration, of course, we now know of virtually every electoral importance of, of uh, every electoral event of any importance, including France, Holland, the U.S., and Britain, by Russian hackers, is now a major issue. Corruption, however, of course, of a traditional type, extremely widespread. The name Trump practically now epitomizes corruption. Indeed. Trump does not seem to understand that there's any distinction whatsoever between the assumption of the office of the President of the United States and uh, self-enrichment. Uh, that in and of itself could be the subject of uh, a very uh, interesting talk. And with that goes, of course, then the ways in which the elections are uh, conducted themselves. So the backdrop to this is our hackles are uh, raised by the fact that we've witnessed depending on what your starting point is, over the last five to 10 years, an increasing kind of accretion of these qualities to the point at which we ought to, I think any normal educated thinking person ought to become nervous about the general direction in which the world is heading. 
uh, it's quite obvious to us that imitation is the name of the game here. If you get a world leader like Mr. Trump, who embodies so many of these qualities at once, other dictators take note and use as an excuse, and there's even evidence, I think, that May has done this, uh, use as an excuse to engage in practices which are otherwise uh, would be regarded as untoward or awkward, if not downright illegal, in their own political traditions. They use the pretext that if Mr. Trump can get away with it, surely so can they. So this is the case of a bad apple absolutely poisoning all the rest. So let me turn now then to the question about of, of what dystopia has to do with this. We want to start, as I suggest at the outset, with some kind of definition here because it's quite obvious there's a reason why in English there are 200 some odd volumes written about utopia. And until I wrote this book, there wasn't one single study of dystopia. And I thought when I'd been working in this field for three decades or so, uh, and about 10 years ago, I got it in my head, well, why is this the case? Why don't I write this book? Here's this gaping hole in the literature. And I thought, it's very odd, isn't it, that all the uh, secondary literature is on one side and nothing is written on the other, when it seems that dystopia now is practically the flavor of the month. And who talks about utopia? Well, Rutger Breckman, a few others today, but not many. And not many people see, we might talk about this later, uh, any kind of prospective utopia down the road. Our road, rather, leads in the opposite direction, it would seem. So when I started to work on the topic, then after about a year or so, it became immediately clear to me why nobody had written a book of this kind before. Uh, it's because the traditional definitions that we have don't, in fact, work very well at all once you begin to dig underneath their foundations. Most of us who come to this kind of topic start out with some sense of utopia as the good society. Some say the perfect society, but it isn't, generally speaking, that. It's a much improved version of the society, by and large, that we live in, dropping out the negative qualities and building up the positive. But when you begin to think, then, of utopia as the good place, and therefore dystopia as the bad place, you immediately are drawn to ask the question, good for whom and bad for whom? And then it starts to get very sticky indeed. Just to use the obviously paradigmatic example of Thomas More's utopia, we have a society portrayed here which is relatively stable. People seem more or less at ease, happy in their personal lives and in the relationship between utopian society and the outer world. But there's crime, there's slavery, there's imperialism. Utopia sends out colonies, and it turns out actually uses vast stocks of gold, which it holds in personal relations with the utmost contempt, but uses these stocks of gold to pay mercenaries to drive natives out of the hinterland on the mainland away from the island of Utopia whenever it needs to send colonies out. Immediately, when you read the text in this way, you realize that some people's utopia here is a privileged space which only becomes utopian by virtue of the suppression of another group elsewhere. And this leads you immediately to realize that the relationship between dystopia and utopia may, in fact, be much more intimate 
than we thought in the first instance. Not just a matter of the good place and the bad place, it's a matter of good for whom and who suffers as a consequence. So even to take the obvious extreme, Orwell's 1984, even in this society, which is the classical literary dystopia, of course, the inner party, O'Brien and co, have, of course, an extraordinarily privileged life, which rests upon the essential oppression, semi-enslavement of the vast majority of the population. So 1984 portrays a utopia for the 2% or so uh, members of the inner party, but a dystopia for everybody else. So now it becomes a matter of number crunching. How we assess what a regime is, whether it's utopia or dystopia, appears to be just a matter of how many people are oppressed and how many people benefit from that oppression. So the idea that one person's utopia is another person's dystopia comes indeed to be a quite persuasive way to enter into this debate. At the same time, it's quite clear that when we look through the literary text and that when we try to examine a definition which will hold for the real world as well as the literary text, there are certain qualities which define most utopias, particularly the literary ones, and certain qualities which define most dystopias. And we can here envision a spectrum of these qualities where on the one utopian wing, we have friendship, solidarity, trust, a sense of mutual respect, toleration, and so on. Moving to the other extreme, a sense of mutual antagonism, competition, anxiety, domination, domination of the regime, in particular by fear. So here's a spectrum that's quite workable, which gives us another definition of how we should approach the question as a whole. And this, I think, works for uh, pretty much the real-life examples. I concentrate more on Stalinism than National Socialism in the book, but you can apply it in any number of different examples. So on the one hand, we have very close, intimate, personal bonds on the utopian end. On the other, we have the extreme alienation of individuals from each other. So I said at the outset that the main argument I wanted to make here was to plead for the relevance of a dystopian concept vis-a-vis -vis comparing our present stage of development with fascism of the 1930s. So what does the literary dystopian tradition have to tell us? What I try to do in the book is to antedate this tradition uh, by and large the focus in the secondary literature, which is not very good, uh, has been upon reactions to Bolshevism, especially, and 20th century texts. I go back in the first instance to the French Revolution, the first, I think, uh, anti-utopian dystopias in particular, because not all dystopias are anti-utopian. That's to say, describe regimes or texts sometimes which are utopias gone wrong and say that, well, this is what happens when you try to be utopian, i.e. too perfectibilist. There are a certain number of dystopias that don't do this, but the classic ones all do. Certainly, Evgeny Zamyatin's We, 1924. Certainly, uh, Huxley's Brave New World of 1932. Certainly, Orwell's 1984 of 1949. All are anti-utopian dystopias. This doesn't mean that any of the authors are themselves not utopians. Interestingly enough, uh, with the exception of the first, perhaps, we can certainly say 
at least in my accounting of it, that Huxley and Orwell remain utopians. And I try to argue the strongest possible case for Orwell because, of course, he's gotten the strongest possible press uh, in the opposite uh, direction as being militantly anti-utopian. But he isn't. He's a socialist, which leaves us with some perplexing problems. So the literary tradition doesn't... It starts with the French Revolution and a caricature of uh, Egalité in particular. But the real starting point is the publication... Uh, of Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, 2000, 1887, of 1888. This is the first major modernist supposed utopia, except in the eyes of the about 20 or so novelists who are critical of it. It's not a utopia, it's a dystopia. Bellamy, whom nobody reads at all today, although lots of people know the principal British respondent to uh, Bellamy, which of course is William Morris, News from Nowhere, uh, which is not often recalled, is a response to Bellamy, rejecting a, a great deal that Bellamy argues for. But the central part of what most of Bellamy's detractors focus upon is the idea that there is a compulsory industrial army, which everybody works for, uh, that there is no evasion of this scheme of universal labor conscription, and that it appears that a kind of ruthless, relentless collectivism attached to this will destroy the spirit of American individualism. So for the first time, we have a major set-piece uh, controversy where one text becomes the target of a whole host of anti-collectivist arguments. Now, from this point onwards, the, utopia, the dystopian literary tradition unfolds into three separate directions. And it's the relationship between these three that becomes one of the more interesting themes in the coming century and uh, a bit. Uh, the three themes are, first of all, the anti-collectivist dystopia. Secondly, the uh, machine-oriented uh, dystopia, which is of uh, extraordinary importance, and then the, the technological development that occurs from that, and then the scientific uh, uh, mechanisms which appear to make such dystopias possible. So these themes are interwoven from this point uh, almost uh, constantly, some coming to the fore at uh, particular points and then retreating in the early part of the 20th century very clearly. It's the political anti-collectivism, which is of the greatest importance. So in the immediate uh, effects of uh, following the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, it is Leninist and then later Stalinist collectivism, which of course becomes the central target of uh, most of the literary texts. This is first immediately evident in uh, Zamyatin's We of 1924. Uh, still an eminently readable text, clearly a source also for both Huxley and Orwell. It's much more clearly evident, uh, perhaps, in Orwell than it is in Huxley, uh, for the reason that Huxley's is a much more ambiguous text, much cleverer in some respects. Uh, modern students, when they encounter it for the first time, often wonder whether this is really a utopia or a dystopia. 
Uh, it's quite obvious why this is the case. It depends on the age of the students and their orientation, but uh, as you're all well aware, uh, the superficial binding together of the society by fear, uh, which uh, distilled down is what characterizes 1984, does not seem to be the case in Huxley's novel. Rather, it seems that although we have an extremely nefarious kind of eugenics-driven scheme for uh, producing people like uh, a hatchery for fish in the first instance, uh, nonetheless, the fact that uh, the wonder drug Soma is available every day to allay our anxieties, the fact that mandatory sexual promiscuity releases uh, people's uh, sense both of uh, any need for individual bonding, which is the idea behind mandatory promiscuity, uh, and uh, any anxieties of uh, uh, a sexual nature. This makes it appear that actually, although it's a satire upon a pleasure-driven society, or uh, Huxley's description is of a society in which pleasure as well seems to dominate. Now, I try to push back this argument in the text. I can't uh, pursue it any further here. But I think at the end of the day, Huxley meant this to be quite clearly a dystopia. This comes out especially not so much in the text itself as comments that he makes uh, in the uh, introduction to the 1946 edition, uh, comments that he makes in relation to the production of his own utopia, Island, of course, of 1962. So, we move to the next stage here. In the second half of the 20th century, the anti-collectivist nature of the literary dystopias of the first half, right up to 1984, begins to shift ground towards the theme of focusing upon science and technology. So insofar as the prospect of an imminent despotic regime overwhelming us recedes into the distance, the target of our dystopian nightmares becomes much more the natural evolution of the society in which we live. And here, science and technology, of course, are absolutely crucial to the argument. So as we move into the middle of the 1950s, into the uh, 1960s, of course, uh, an important theme is nuclear war. There are a dozen or so reasonably well-known novels which take a post nuclear catastrophe or the onset of a nuclear catastrophe as their central theme. These all seemed very dated until about two weeks ago when all of a sudden we were rudely reminded that this problem has hardly gone away uh, and is upon us yet again. As we move into the 1960s and the 1970s, we then begin to see the revival of a theme which had been present already from the 1870s namely the problem of the relationship between humanity and machinery. Now, the crucial text here uh, is Samuel Butler's Erewhon of 1872. Erewhon is, of course, nowhere spelled backwards, which means this is a satire of utopia as nowhere, at one level anyway. What Butler proposes is a premise that is now extraordinarily familiar, even intimate for us. Uh, because it's the basis of what we today call artificial intelligence. Namely that, drawing immediately upon the controversy surrounding Darwin's origin of species, 
If human consciousness could have evolved from monkeys, says Butler, how is it that we cannot imagine that machines will evolve a similar consciousness across the course of their own evolution? Is the leap of faith any greater than that required to get from monkeys to human beings? And Butler's answer is no, it isn't. And our answer today would be, well, maybe, maybe not. But we tend to nod our heads at this point because we face a future which is developing very dramatically, swiftly, where, I don't know if anybody read this morning's Guardian, in fact, well, there's a long piece there about uh, robots, as in this case, as sexual partners, which is a whole other uh, set of issues as well. But the premise remains the same. We are inventing creatures which are coming to look more and more like us, coming to act more and more like us, to think more and more like us, and we're reaching the stage where the premise that they can begin to evolve by what we would call programming themselves is a viable one. Now, this had all been, of course, in the sphere of science fiction in the 19th and early 20th century. Robots appear in a variety of works at the end of uh, the 19th century. Uh, probably the best known example is Carol Capek's R.U.R., the play of 1920, uh, which introduces the word robot, which means forced labor in Czech, into English. Uh, but the concept, of course, is in the realm of science fiction, and it is an analogous to most readers to the Frankenstein problem, uh, and also to an account of machinery generally, rather than specifically robot-like creatures. So we can see the industrial system, if you like, as overwhelming humanity in a kind of vast uh, abstract sense. More immediately as the background to speaking about robots as our creations, overwhelming us as a result of coming to have greater intelligence or greater power than we do. So this narrative theme then is present right the way through from the 1870s onwards, sticks its head up periodically. By the 1980s, 1990s, uh, we see a spectrum of texts ranging from literary dystopias right through science fiction, and I draw a pretty rigid distinction, although it's very difficult to do this, between sci-fi dystopias and dystopias which are not science fiction based, using Margaret Atwood's uh, work in particular to build a wall between the two kinds of text. But of course, this is a moving vehicle constantly. What is science fiction in one generation becomes science fact in the next, so that the entire uh, imagery that we have from uh, Capek, from E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, the famous short story of 1909, which is uh, the, the classic starting point for most accounts of this kind. Uh, right through the works of Atwood and any number of writers at the beginning of this century. Uh, we have a clear sense here of the growth and development of an idea which effectively has reached its time in the present. So I've got about five minutes or so to go. Let me try to draw uh, some of the strands of this argument together here. Where do we stand at the moment? Well. We have one additional element to introduce here, and that begins in about the 1960s, although the first instances of it 
uh, aren't exactly characteristic of what we now envision might be the worst case scenario for our 21st century future. That is, of course, the environmentalist dystopia. Glo the global warming narrative, which is in the first instance, of course, a narrative of resource depletion, overpopulation, uh, is already present in those latter forms in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, works like Harry Harrison's Make Room, Make Room, which was made as a film called Soil and Green. I don't know if anybody's seen that. Quite a good film, actually, considering how many adaptations go wrong in this particular area. Uh, but the theme itself is present already from that period when, of course, world overpopulation, it's a major theme for Huxley as well, is coming to be seen as the great problem humanity faces. By the time we reach the late 1990s, of course, this has morphed into a discourse about global warming, which is in some respects uh, a more acute, uh, highly focused analysis insofar as this seems to be something which is immediately quantifiable, where we have relatively clear, unless you're Donald Trump, of course, cause and effect. Uh, but at the same time, it detracts from the focal points of the discourses of the 1960s and 1970s, particularly insofar as it does not tie overpopulation to global warming and uh, to uh, tie in resource depletion at the same time. Nonetheless, it's quite clear to go back to my starting point here that if we have now uh, these narratives side by side, in particular the anti-collectivist dystopia, the scientific technological forms of dystopia, the environmentalist dystopia now coming together, that the qualities which make up most visions of the, not the immediate, but the interim and distant future for us, which is, in my reckoning, about 70 to 80 to 100 years, so the last decades of this century. The vision which we now realize is, I don't want to put a degree of probability on it, but let's at least say more likely than not, is one in which global warming has not been stemmed. Uh, we can talk about this, but uh, the likelihood of this happening at the moment is not very good. And of course, Mr. Trump is doing his best to ensure that nothing gets done whatsoever. And uh, to see the US withdraw from the Paris Agreement, of course, is the next major blow, I think, that's likely to be inflicted on all of us uh, as a consequence of that attitude. So the movement forward from 2020 or so for the future 50 to 70 years is one in which it's quite likely that we'll see a convergence in real life of the three predominant themes of the dystopian literary narrative from the 1870s, 1880s onwards. The idea in the first instance that we face regimes in which uh, a punitive kind, call it fascist if you like, but a punitive kind of repressive political regime becomes the norm rather than the exception. The odds of this are pretty good now. I fear this is only the beginning of a trend which will, against the whole account of the democratization of the world after 1945 and so on, this is much more likely to be the political future that we and our children and their children face. Secondly, at the scientific and technological level, as I suggested earlier, the, those of you familiar with the post-humanist debate are well aware 
that the narrative looking forwards half a century or so about humanity is that, of course, we are going to become more and more artificial creatures. More and more of us will be cyborgs, will have artificial parts, mechanical parts implanted in us. More and more of us will rely upon the harvesting of organs from other people, from animals, from laboratories, and so on, in the name of the prolongation of life, which is, of course, one of the great utopian ideals as well. Uh, more and more, we will see side by side, sitting next to us, so to speak, creatures who are wholly artificial, that's to say robots who are acting like us, creatures who are somewhat organic and natural, but also somewhat artificial, and then, at some point, there will be the last natural beings left. As, of course, wholly natural beings will never live as long as these artificial and mixed beings will. So at some point, and this is probably not as far off as we might imagine, maybe 30 years or so, we will have a cataclysmic identity problem. Humanity will realize that it is losing its sense of what it is. And this dystopia, of course, the prospect of being overwhelmed by creatures who are not native humans, so to speak, this is a truly frightening prospect for some. For others, it holds out the promise of extreme longevity, amongst other things. And then finally, uh, the environmentalist uh, prospect. Uh, this is not, of course, a good one. Those of you who know Mark Linus's book, Six Degrees, uh, will know the scenarios that are held out for the two-degree warming scenario, the three-degree, the four-degree, the five-degree, and so on. Basically, it looks extremely bleak after about a degree and a half, which is round about where we are now. We're at about 1.2, 1.3. There's no sign of leveling off here. Uh, it's not to say that it couldn't be done. It's to say that it isn't being done, which is a quite different proposition. Uh, this means that once we begin to hit two degrees Celsius global warming, the prospect of additional tipping points, uh, not just the melting of both polar caps, but the Siberian tundra, which is enormously worrying in addition because of the billions of tons of methane under the tundra, we may reach particular points where no return is then possible after the tipping point, which means in turn, of course, that if this unfolds over a lengthy period of time, all of those living in the hotter parts of the world will have to emigrate to the cooler parts. The center parts of the world around the equator will be completely uninhabitable, probably within 40 to 50 years. Some billions of people will have to go either north or south. Mostly it's going to be north. Uh, what are the people living in the north going to say to that? Well, they're not going to be very happy either. So from two degrees onwards, almost all the scenarios look extremely unfortunate. The exact way in which then we see an interaction between the uh, scientific and uh, technical aspects of a dystopian vision and the environmental aspects and the political aspects, this all remains to pan out. Nobody can see this clearly. My crystal ball is just as cloudy as anyone else's in this respect. But it is reasonably clear, as has always been the case in the past, that the more extreme and catastrophic the situation is, the more political dictatorship will arise to offer solutions, or not, 
or to protect the few, which is increasingly likely, I think, to be the case. So, to sum up just in a sentence, the point about thinking about dystopia today is that we are plagued probably more than ever by short-termism. Uh, our leaders traditionally think in terms of four or five year chunks of time. That's the amount of time requires usually to stabilize uh, their power in office. Uh, the prospect of being able to look into a long-term future is a luxury which really only people who have the kind of education uh, that very few have, and also the, the luxury of the free time to think and to read. Uh, this is not something available to the vast majority, but rather only to the few. So the point about thinking about dystopia is that like utopia, it gives us the prospect of imagining a long-term future. We can think 50, 70, 80 years in the future, knowing as we do so that the prospect of scientific accuracy diminishes with every year we push our imagery into the future, but knowing at the same time that the only way we can prevent the worst kinds of scenarios from unfolding is precisely to imagine that certain trends we see around us now actually may eventuate in the future. So thank you for your patience.